I haven't made this up, by the way. This is an accepted thing. It sounds nuts. It sounds like I've just made this shit up. I have not. Hey, Michelle. Hello, Geordie. How's it hanging? To the left, to the right, to the right, to the left. That's a silly thing to ask someone, isn't it? Don't you think? How's it hanging? Who says that? Boys, Aussie boys, that's who says it. What does it mean? How's it hanging? I mean, where did it come from? Is it that puberty blues, that surfer chick kind of reference? I don't know. But how's it hanging? I always think, like, it's it's for the D. How's the D hanging? The dingling. I tell you what, we saw some dingling that we weren't expecting to see on that Wham documentary. Did we? George Michael, he, was, he had a big package. Oh. He was... <laughs> He ah. was packing a big package. I tell Wait you, I've got a shock. Rewind, <laughs> rewind. Michelle, dear listeners, welcome to Eavesdropping. I am Geordie. And I'm Michelle. And you are Eavesdropping, which you makes are... you an eavesdropper. We're just having conversations and you're listening in, but we welcome that. So thank you for listening. And please don't be offended when we trash your favourite dead megastar, George Michael. I'm not trashing <laughs> him. I'm saying... He had a massive ding-dong in those tight jeans. Yes. I was now, shocked. Now, listen, we were 12, 13, 10, 11, 12, 13, whatever age we were when Wham! were God first knows. big and massive. And did we realise how big and massive George Michael was? Because he had very <laughs> tight, 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 pale jeans on. And you could see the length and the girth. You could. It's only when you pointed it out. I, I wouldn't have looked down there. You could not miss it, Geordie. The eyes were drawn <laughs> to the package. They, it was right there. And you know how they had that, that album, Make It Big. I thought, <laughs> blimey, you didn't make it, need to make that any bigger. It was huge. No need. <laughs> no Already need. big. Thank you. Um, I will say that documentary, not being a massive Wham fan, although you did point out that I knew all the words to Wham rap, and the other one, Young Guns, having some fun. Crazy ladies, put your mind the run. Wham, bam, a bit. I don't know all the words. Oh, it just turns out I don't know all the words. <laughs> you were singing along. You were making them up. I was. I know the rap in mm. Wham Rap. We watched, obviously, the new Netflix special, documentary, whatever, Wham, or what's it called, even? It was just called Wham. It was from Andrew Ridgely's sort of perspective, but actually... George was, Michael's voice was on there. Well, he voiced the whole thing. So I guess this must have been in production before he sadly passed away in... Well, when was that? 2016? I think so. Fast and loose with those facts. <laughs> it was a very touching and sentimental portrayal of their rise to fame and what happened once they got that fame and then George, with his incredible talent went on to bigger and better things, leaving his friend seemingly in the dust. But actually, that friendship started in primary school. Not to spoil the documentary if you're planning to watch it. George Michael being a little Greek boy with thick glasses, a bit chubby. Yog, because his name was something unpronounceable. And Andrew Ridgely, who was the kind of out there, kind of like very confident, very attractive, loudmouth, fun guy, took him under his wing. And together, it was Andrew's dream to be in a band. Andrew was the songwriter initially until George Michael kind of took his wings and flew. But he couldn't have done it without Andrew's support. 
and belief in them. Look, it's a really light documentary. It doesn't dig deep, but it doesn't need to because it is a beautiful celebration. I feel like it did. I disagree with what Michelle just mm. said there, listeners. I really do think it did dig deep on the level of boyhood friendship and true love between these guys because Andrew, although it must have hurt to watch his friend fly to those dizzy heights and even break out of the duo at one point to release a single, Careless Whisper was his and only his, right? Uh, He does have a songwriting credit on it, Ridgely does, but it was must have been hurtful. But he loved his friend so much that he allowed him to do that without, you know, taking him to court. I've just read Lol Tolhurst's first memoir, Cured, which is a very similar story of two boys who were boyhood friends. It was both of their dreams. They worked really hard to get where they got to. It was always them. They had loads of different members of The Cure until at one point, unfortunately for Lol Tolhurst, he fell off a bit of a cliff with alcoholism and a lot of Mm. tragedy happened to him. And he kind of became a bit of a liability for the band The Cure and Robert Smith, his best friend, childhood friend, let him go. And so at some point, Lol Tolhurst got angry about it thanks to a meeting with a barrister or a legal team somewhere along the lines and revenge became his main motivation. He took the whole band to court. He lost. Yeah. But then years later, and I'm talking 25 years, they touched base again and now he is, as the title of the book says, cured. He has done his 12 steps. He's done his recovery, although he tried many times and failed. And now they're all on speaking terms. And it seems like there's a lot of love between those, especially those two initial men, the two imaginary boys, as he calls them throughout the book. It's really touching. Male friendship. What a thing. It's a beautiful thing to celebrate. It is. And that whole Wham documentary is a celebration of their friendship and the strength of it. And when we were watching it, we both commented, they had fun. They were just Mm. living it up. Smiling, laughing all the time. Yeah, and... You know, they knew that they were ridiculous. But, you know, it was interesting because Andrew Ridgely, he chose those sportswear outfits that they were known for. He was the stylist. He was the stylist. But honestly, like, if you haven't watched it and you still feel like there's something to glean from it because we've been just talking about it for the last five minutes, please go ahead. Like, I loved it. I think we both really touched by it. It was a little bit emotional. So, yeah, that's our telly rec. Uh, Literature and television. Telerex for sure. Telerex, one more. I'm watching telly. You're watching telly. We're watching telly on the telly. It's the television. So, Michelle, have you had any feedback from any previous episodes? Well, yes. Obviously, uh, we had talked a little bit about Nirvana a few episodes back. Yeah, a little bit. My God, you're obsessed. Yeah, we'll put a pin in that because that's what I'm talking about today. I was talking about Dave Grohl's book, How I Found a Bit Cheesy. Sorry, Dave. Sorry, Dave. You're I'm not sure cheesy. He's feeling it. <laughs> Those sales have dipped. Because <laughs> look, I have actually heard him in interviews speaking off the cuff. He's brilliant. He's funny. He swears. Yeah. He's fucking swears all the fucking time, just like me. Does he? Yes, he Goodness. does. Look, we did get some listener feedback from our listener Safka. Not only oh. about how she got to see Nirvana. At yes. that legendary ANU show that I talked about. Oh, she was there. She went to it because she worked at Impact Records. Yeah, she was the an employee. Coolest yeah. record store in Canberra. The coolest. She knew the promoter at the Uni Bar uh, when they, when Nirvana played there, and she got in. And she said, and these are her words: "It was a crazy night, as they were previously unknown. 
but exploded just before the gig. I remember having to order Nevermind from overseas as it wasn't available at the time. The gig was so crowded, the windows got kicked in. Fun times. <gasps> I remember times. Smashing. Were you there? No, 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 no. Because all my friends were there. Oh, and they mentioned, oh, we smashed some windows. Well, no, it was more than that because it was wild. People kicked in the windows. They smashed in the doors. Instead of 500 people or whatever they could hold at the Unibar. Oh, my God. It was thousands. They were ram raiding it. People were just losing it, climbing onto the stage, everything. It was epic. I can't imagine that. That's insane. Yeah. I've been to many gigs there and I've seen some fantastic shows as well. We won't mention, what are they called? I remain on the far side of crazy. That was one of my first. What are oh. they called? I'm born on Mexican radio. Wall of Voodoo. Wall of Voodoo. Wall of Voodoo. That's right. We would party with the band afterwards. I told you about my damned experience. Yes. That was my first gig there. Then there was Wall of Voodoo. Then I saw Public Image Limited. That was insane. At the uni bar. Yes, I did. That, that was the golden days. And I'd always sit on the stage and my friend Sarah and I ended up sitting on the stage for Iggy Pop. People were pushing us from behind and she put her head down for about five seconds just to kind of like compose herself. Iggy Pop came up to her and said, don't fall asleep on me now, baby, because I'm a real wild one, wild one, wild one. And they went into the song. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I love that. Yes. Iggy. Oh, that's brilliant. Safka was at the Unibar show, but I have to say that was only part one of the message that she sent us because, listeners, we do love it when you write in. She was also loving one of our episodes where we talked about the iconic Australian coming-of-age film from the 70s, Puberty Blues. That I just mentioned about two seconds ago. Yes, you did. How's it hanging? She called us fish face moles. You do this with your hand, don't you? Like I've got my hand with like my thumb and my pinky out and you shake it. What? Hang, like, hang 10, hang, in. hang, hang, hang ten. 5, surf lingo. Well, you know hang 10 is like being on the surfboard ten and toes. you've got 10 toes over the surfboard. That's not all. She didn't only comment on Nirvana and Puberty Blues. You won't believe this. But Safka is a Wiccan. She's a witch. She's Wiccan. She's a witch. Can you believe it? And now wow. she is our unofficial go-to gal for all things witchy so welcome you're now an unofficial eavesdropper researcher oh my god we've got so many now we've got a modern mystic we've got al teggett official hot guy we've got (laughs) the teacher linda we've got so many people helping us we've got yarnica Neil the Scientist, yes, Ren, we've got them all helping us. It's so wonderful because we love it when you throw us a story. I know, and we still get shit wrong, even with all of those researchers. She sent us this amazing email with a little picture of her cat, Phaedra. Oh, what a beautiful name. Yep, she outlined this spell she did because Phaedra was unwell. She mm-hmm. did this spell and... It worked. Thank God. She made a full recovery? Yes, she did. She said she got a call from the vet. Miraculously overnight, Phaedra was improved. I think it's all down to the spell. Well, it could be. It may have just happened anyway. But, you know, having that belief and having that, the the ritual, like we said in that episode, the witches episode, having the ritual in place, you know, believing in it, thinking positive thoughts, that all helps. And that's something that our modern mystic Tamira would definitely advocate as well. And I do think we should do a... A spell for ourselves, an eavesdropping spell, Michelle. Yes, we do. We want to make it big. 
That's what we want. Not in the George Michael style, not that big. But anyway, when she signed off her message, she said, right, I'm off for a durry, a Chico roll and a root. (laughs) And then she wrote, just kidding, I don't smoke, I'm vegetarian and I'm too bloody tired for a root. Too bloody tired for a root. I love that. Too bloody tired for a root. And for anyone, she's referencing Puberty Blues. So thank you so much, Safka. We can't wait to get you on board next time we do something witchy. Fabulous. Thank you. And thank you to all our new listeners. We love you all. Shout out. Shout out. You're getting a shout out. So we've been talking a lot about rock music. You know, I've just spoken about Iggy Pop and you were still talking about Dave Grohl and Nirvana. It's coming up more, I'm telling you. I can't wait. Well, I'm going to tell you first because I spoke recently about my own little brush with rock stardom when I bumped into Paul McCartney and inadvertently got him to sing happy birthday to my friend for her 20th birthday, which she will be able to dine out on for the rest of her life. Yes. You know how I said I had bumped into Paul McCartney. Do you know that I may not have, actually? What do you mean? Is it a bit like your husband being Stephen Merchant? Well, is there a lookalike out there? Because there is a possibility that Paul is dead. And the clues about Paul being dead have been littered throughout their albums and cover art since 1969. Yes. You knew this, right? Well, you know, the famous Abbey Road cover, that's the only thing I know about with the What about feet. it? Well, he's not wearing shoes and that means he's dead, apparently. Oh, come on. I know, it's ridiculous. Paul is dead, but that's all I know. I don't know more. I'm glad that you don't know more because I'm going to tell you. On the 12th of October, 1969, a Detroit radio station announced that Paul McCartney was dead. It was claimed that he died on the 9th of November in 1966, three years earlier, which was a year after the Beatles' second massive tour of America, which was the peak of Beatlemania, where they're all screaming and crying and fainting. <laughs> and, you, and the band couldn't even hear themselves playing because of the screams. Yeah. It's said that Paul had an argument with the rest of the Beatles during the recording of the new album at the time, Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So he had this argument in the studio, got in his car, angrily drove off, but he became distracted by a traffic warden, Oh, which is also known as a meter maid. Tell me, Rita, meter maid. I hope we don't have to pay royalties if I'm singing a snippet of this song. So he didn't notice that the traffic lights had changed. He didn't notice that the lights had changed. Oh, my God. That's Every single song is yes, going to have. Hints, <laughs> there's hints, yep. Somehow this caused Paul's car to become involved in a car accident. He crashed and sadly he was decapitated. Now, there's a line in a song by Ringo. Don't pass me by. That one. You were in a car crash and you lost your hair. That one. All right. The Beatles have been putting hints all through their albums apparently this is how we now know that Paul may be dead yes I haven't made this up by the way (laughs) this is an accepted thing it sounds nuts it sounds like I've just made this shit up I have not it's out there it's on Wikipedia it's on (laughs) all sorts of websites it's true (laughs) somehow they say somehow they kept Paul's tragic and untimely death under wraps in order to spare the public from the grief of losing their icon 
because of the fervent adulation they were receiving at the time. You know, women were passing out, girls were passing out, they were crying. It was all too much. Somehow they kept it a secret, Michelle. Mm. And at his funeral set, his funeral then even was kept secret. And it was attended by people like, well, you know, obviously it was very close circles because they didn't want it to get out. His bandmates were there. And uh, there were eulogies by George and Ringo who read out their songs Blue Jay Way and Don't Pass Me By, followed by a procession that was represented by the Abbey Road's front cover. So you've got Lennon, John Lennon at the front, who's the priest officiating the funeral and burying him. And there's an Easter egg that proves this in the song Strawberry Fields Forever, where you can hear John Lennon say, I buried Paul. Now, to hear that, You can go to YouTube, and in fact, I found this on a YouTube post from 2015, posted by Nirvana bass player Chris Novoselic, or Novoselic, whichever way you'd like to say it. I think he was Croatian, you say Novoselic. 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 So Lennon later said that the words were actually cranberry sauce, but I think it sounds like he's saying, I'm very poor, not I buried Paul. It's all just bullshit. He didn't say I buried Paul. (laughs) He said something, though, because you can hear it, and he's admitted to saying something at the end. These are all adding up to make one great big theory that Paul McCartney died in 1966. In the aftermath of his death, the remaining Beatles looked to the winner of a McCartney lookalike contest to be his replacement. They found an orphan, very convenient, no one to rat him out, an orphan from Edinburgh, so he's got a Scottish accent, named William Campbell. Right. William Campbell apparently was trained after being plucked from obscurity to win a Paul McCartney lookalike contest at some point. They went to him, they trained him to emulate Paul McCartney, and the public never suspected a thing. He must have had to do a lot of hard work. And I mean, obviously, Linda didn't realise either. <laughs> well, Linda had never been married to the real Paul McCartney because she hadn't met him in 1966 when he died. She met him later. <gasps> Interesting. All right. Good good work Mm, on the timeline. It predates. Thank you. I've done my research. (laughs) So it was lucky that the Beatles had stopped playing lives live around this time to focus on the recording of the album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And they also had a massive image overhaul. And this is where on the internet you'll find lots of pictures of old Paul versus new Paul. Look how different he is. Well, he's grown. He's he was like (laughs) A young man in the first, you know, suited, booted Beatles version. Now he's all red regalia and caps and hats and Mm -hmm. it's all getting a bit hippy-dippy. But apparently, Michelle, the British government were also in on this. They initiated this cover-up. Yes, they utilised MI5. And then they realised when the news of McCartney's early demise hit their ears, they realised the severe distress it would cause their fans and because they care about people. The British government cares so much they do. about people. Just look at their COVID response. They really <laughs> care. <laughs> <laughs> they really went to town on this McCartney cover-up because that's that's how far they'll go to protect the British public, yep. you know? Yes. It's said that the um, remaining Beatles, however, who were coerced into joining in on this, they felt such grief at this huge lie that they left their little Easter eggs and their little messages and their little hints in their music and their album covers ever since to hint to their beloved fans the truth. Okay, so just two quick things here. Sure. (laughs) Hit me because I'll know the answers. First of all, 
songwriting talent. You can't emulate that, I don't think. Although there are some singularly written by Paul McCartney, aren't there? Yes. and That's a really good point, Michelle. A really, really good, good point. point. And also... Unless William Campbell was just an extremely good songwriter. We all know that Lennon and McCartney, like singularly and together, were once-in-a-generation songwriters. It doesn't happen all the time. So the songwriting and then the singing. I mean... Paul McCartney's yes, voice. the voice. The timbre of his voice. It's very um, specific. You might look like him, but you can't sound like him. You know what? These things never occurred to me whilst writing this I story out, Michelle. I a musician. I thought they would be first on I your know. radar. It should have been the first. But, I mean, it, it does say that he was trained to sound like him. But even to sing like him, I mean... For example, we just found some vintage clips of us in Bush Family Band, which is the band that you and I were doing. And the thing is, like, you know, you have your voice, even when you're singing someone else's song, even if you tried to emulate them, it's so hard. Nobody can get the nuances of any particular singer. But what about that lady in cloud busting that we went to see, the Kate Bush in person? She was good. She's good, she but she's it. not Kate. You know, and that's the thing. Yeah. Like you can be almost you never a hundred percent. So yeah, I've got those two small issues with this crazy conspiracy. They're very good issues. <laughs> I will say, though, I'm sure that the people who are backing this theory, if there mm. are any, would definitely find some sort of confirmation bias to back their version of events. For example, she loves you, yeah, 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 suddenly to, hey, Jude, that might be something different, you know. Mm. So they might say, well, those two timbres yes. and different ways of singing are completely different. They'll it's find, very yes. convenient that the first album that he died after mm. that one and then suddenly, although... I think they may have made Rubber Soul as yeah. well by 66. When did I don't they make know. Revolver? I don't know. Conspiracy theorists will find connections and join dots where there are no connections Absolutely. or dots to be joined. <laughs> like it, they just find We've, it all. I feel like if we had a Patreon subscriber for every time we said that, we'd be millionaires. Come on then. Right. If we go back to my theory, or not my theory, let me just point that out. Not my mm. theory, other people's theory, the theory. The Beatles are feeling very guilty and they're dropping little hints all through their yeah. records and whatnot. But also by the end of 1969, there were a lot of records by other artists relating to the death and the cover-up and they were released, such as The Ballad of Paul by The Mystery Tour and So Long Paul by an artist by the name of Werbley Finster, who was actually a pseudonym for Jose Feliciano. Oh. And this is just to, to name a few. How random. How absolutely random and ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1969, there was a writer called Tim Harper. He published an article titled, Is Beatle Paul McCartney Dead? And this highlighted all the messages that were being sent from the Beatles in their music and their album covers. So basically he looked, he took a deep dive into all the songs that they'd written and recorded and all the album covers. I mean, they were out there. Let's face it. They were groundbreaking. Yeah. The Why album. What the fuck is Incredible. that? It's amazing. But what about this song, Revolution Number no. 9? So disturbing I couldn't listen to it as a child. Mm. I found it too much. Number 9. Number 9. Number 9. Well, in amongst that, you can hear, if you play it backwards. Of course. <laughs> To paraphrase Robert Plant, why the fuck would you? Yeah. But if you turn it backwards, it says, turn me on, dead man. <laughs> 
which is also hints and clues to say, oh, uh, you know, he's dead. No, now, it's this, not. Um, it's this... actually sick. Turn me on, dead man. Make make it big, dead man. That's what I think turn me on, dead man means. <laughs> what? Why dead man? Isn't that what you just said? Dead man. Yeah. Turn... But why dead man? How would that be a sexy thing to say? It's necrophilia. Turn me on, Deadpool. Yuck. That's what I'm saying. It's horrible. <laughs> anyway. Weird. <laughs> okay. It could be about drugs too because to be turned on would be also to like drop some acid or something. Yeah, okay. This guy, Tim Harper, the writer, he also wrote about the back cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, the album, where every Beatle except for Paul McCartney is photographed facing out to the viewer. Ooh. He's got his back. Dead. To the cover. He's dead, obviously. He must be dead. He must be dead. In 1969, which was the year the Beatles released Abbey Road, this also marked the end of the band. But somebody in the Beatles press office spoke out eventually after all these years. <laughs> he said, this is their press officer, Derek Taylor. He said... Recently, we've been getting a flood of inquiries asking about reports that Paul is dead. We've been getting questions like that for years, of course. But in the past few weeks, we've been getting them at the office and at home night and day. I'm even getting telephone calls from disc jockeys and others in the United States. Oh. People are really taking it to heart. And this is pre-internet, so it's like groundswell. Imagine if it was post-internet. My God. Crazy. No wonder he took off. So at this time, Paul McCartney was already feeling apart from the band and he didn't like certain choices that were being made by the group regarding their future and whatnot. And also his daughter Mary had just been born. And also on top of that, Lennon had announced that he was leaving. Have you seen that documentary of them making, what is the album? I can't remember what it was. What's the one with Maxwell's Silver Hammer put together by the guy who did... The son of the producer. No, by the guy who did The Hobbit and... Oh! That guy. Really? It's good. It's really good. They've put it together and Yoko's sitting there throughout everything. John's off his fucking chops on heroin and George walks out for a time. I haven't seen it all the way through because it's long. What's the name of that guy who did... We always reference him because we talk... It's the New Zealand guy. And I want to say James Cameron, but it's not. It's not always James Cameron. Bad taste. Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson. Anywho, back to the story. Yes. As I said, poor old Paul, he was feeling left out and mm-hmm. apart from the rest, things were going a little bit crazy. He just started a family with Linda McCartney. Radio stations in the United States were announcing his death and having on-air discussions, which also fueled the conspiracy. Ringo Starr told a reporter... If people are going to believe it, they're going to believe it. I can only say it's not true. I mean, what more can he say? They're not going to believe him. And Lennon told a radio show that the rumour was insane, but agreed it was good publicity for Abbey Road. Some people even blamed John Lennon for the rumour. Has Paul McCartney ever come out and said, it's ridiculous, I'm clearly still here? Yes, of course he has. So there are theories about the Abbey Road album cover, which I said before. They were rife, you know, it was a funeral procession with Lennon dressed in white to represent heaven. Ringo's in black, he's the undertaker. George Harrison's got denim on, he's the grave digger. Why's he got the (laughs) shitty job? McCartney is barefoot and out of step with the others, which symbolises that he's dead. And also... Why was left-handed McCartney holding a cigarette in his right hand? Further proof of him being an imposter. And then there's the number plate on the white Volkswagen Beetle, which is in the photo that's giving away clues. 
again, conspiracy theorists will always make shit up just to suit them. Yeah. LMW281F is the number plate. LMW could mean Linda McCartney weeps or Linda McCartney widow, despite the fact, like I said, they hadn't even met when he allegedly died. And 28IF, if, was interpreted as Paul would have been 28 years old if he'd lived. For oh fuck's sake. God. Ridiculous. Hang on. So is he is he meant to have died at 27? 27 club. No, he would have been younger. I think at that stage he would have been 28 if he did. Oh, okay. A DJ put all these signs together. This is what Ringo said. A DJ put all these signs together, Paul, with no shoes and the Volkswagen Beetle. Then there's the magical mystery tour where we had three red roses and he had a black one. It's just madness. There's no way we could prove he was alive. (laughs) Except he was fucking there. Ringo, the voice of reason. Flip forward to 1969. There's a BBC radio interview with Paul McCartney at his farm in Scotland. Mm. At this point, he wasn't living in Peasmarsh down in Kent, Sussex borders. He's now in Scotland, Mullacintyre, etc. McCartney told the BBC he understood why people might think these strange things because normally he did an interview a week to ensure that he remained in the news. But now he's retreated from the public's gaze. So questions are being asked, you know. He did this interview with BBC Radio up on his farm with his new baby and his wife and all happy living their life. But then they got a visit from Life magazine and I don't think they were invited. He wasn't happy about it. He lost his shit. He swore at the photographer and the journalist before throwing a bucket of water over them and they took photos of all of this behaviour, of him trying to even thump the photographer at one point. Get the fuck off my land. He didn't want these pictures getting out, so he offered to pose for a photo and answer some of the questions himself in return for the role of film of him disgracing himself. Okay. Then there was the publication of the article and the photo in the 1969 November issue of Life magazine. That's when the rumours finally started to dwindle. He told Life magazine that the rumour was bloody stupid and said, (laughs) it was a bit weird meeting people shortly after that because they'd be looking at the back of my ears, looking a bit (laughs) through me. And it was weird doing the, I really am him. Perhaps it started the rumour because I haven't been in the press much lately. I've done enough press for a lifetime and I don't have anything to say these days. I'm happy to be with my family and I will work when I work. I was switched on for 10 years and never switched off. Now I'm switching off whenever I can. I would rather be a little less famous these days. And that's why I didn't go up and bug him while he was having his Chinese food the other night. Oh, good for you. I don't know. I might have gone up. Who knows? You'd have been the only one. No one bothered him. Yeah. In reality, when he was supposed to have been killed in his car crash, he was actually on holiday with Jane Asher, who was his girlfriend at the time. Oh, And he's not the only pop star to have this sort of strange conspiracy about them because in 2003, Avril Lavigne was said to have been replaced by a lookalike named Melissa because (laughs) Avril found fame too difficult at the start of her career. So they used this body double called Melissa, but then Avril Lavigne died. So the company, the record company, replaced her with Melissa, the body double, full time. (laughs) And the proof of this can be found in her red carpet pictures where Lavigne normally wears trousers, but Melissa prefers skirts and dresses. Not to mention how facially different they look. She looks post-2003. Does she? No, I looked. She's just older. It's all ridiculous. People will find anything anywhere. Believe what you want to believe is the upshot of this story. 
I think it really is Paul McCartney. He didn't die, but it was fun looking into all the theories and all the speculation that people would do. And let's bear that in mind today, guys, because if we hear this kind of shit, somebody like Barack Obama is the most photographed man in the world. And he has had such deep fake videos and films and photos Mm -hmm. taken of him that he's told his friends, that's not me. And they won't believe him. So this kind of deep fakery is, thanks to AI, going to be more and more prevalent as we move forward into the future. So look out, guys. Take it with a pinch of salt. Like I said before, we're going to circle back to Nirvana because... Mm. I know. She loves Nirvana, doesn't she? But well, do you know what? Oh, Kurt, I love you. Dave, I don't love you so much. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. I did go down a rabbit hole, a YouTube rabbit hole. I've been listening to all the albums. I did oh. love him. You know, we had been speaking a little bit about this off mic. He was so beautiful. You didn't agree that Kurt Cobain was beautiful. I thought he was absolutely fucking gorgeous. Some people like that Not look. your style. Well, he was attractive. I mean... I can't say it's not my style. I had boyfriends that looked like him back then. I thought he was absolutely fucking gorgeous. And I was so taken aback at how young he looked. You know, it's been just shy of 30 years. So young. But anyway. Run it in, Nish. (laughs) She loves him. I can't. (laughs) Going back and watching all these videos, it just reminded me why I loved them so much and why they were brilliant. Because they just did not give a fuck. It gave me goosebumps to see him live when I was watching all these videos and and I have to say like this probably sounds crazy to Gen Z's who like to them Nirvana is classic FM possibly I think there are some youngsters that appreciate the Pixies Nirvana Blondie but it's old people music it's 30 plus but it's classic you know that's like the Beatles for me exactly it was really impactful at the time and if you didn't live through that you only have the secondhand versions a little bit like you know the Beatles that we were just talking you were talking about we weren't there we've seen the footage of all those girls crying and fainting but to not experience it and not understand culturally how that affected our parents and how it changed the world I don't think people understand the effect of Nirvana at that time it was a Beatles effect they were just so massive and so fast and they look like our friends Our friends dressed like them. You know, it was like... We dressed like that. We did. It was like a band that we could own and relate to. Of course, part of the whole thing is not only were they the biggest band in the world at that time, he married Courtney Love. And it was quick. I mean, it was a whirlwind romance that ended up in pregnancy after only a few months. Drug addiction. Yeah, they met in... Well, they'd met earlier, but they got together at the end of 91. She got pregnant. There was a quick marriage in Hawaii in February 92. His band had just blown up. So, you know, he was like the most photographed dude in the world at that point. And it's kind of funny because they were so unconventional in so many ways, but so conventional that he got married yeah the thing is it was a whirlwind romance and if you read accounts of that time their relationship was not really built to last there's this documentary called montage of heck it was put together by courtney and francis bean cobain and courtney in the documentary said that when she'd met him you know she'd already done heroin and she'd loved it 
and she kicked it, but he hadn't he hadn't done heroin. But yeah. he wanted it and he told her that he wanted to make three million bucks, retire and be a junkie. That was his goal. That was his goal. Okay. It's a goal. It is a goal. You know, good on him for having ambition. And if you believe what you read in articles, like I said, you know, she was the one that introduced Kurt to heroin and was the junkie in the relationship first. And then together they just enabled themselves and their habits. And the more famous he got, the more he binged on heroin to escape. Honestly, I don't know what the truth is, but, you know, from everything I've seen of Courtney Love, she is a smart, strong, opinionated woman. She's intellectual. She's interesting. She's funny. She's massively talented. You know, whatever it is, she's got it. You know, she is a fucking star, but she is also a fucking train wreck. (laughs) And she made things difficult for Nirvana because she had opinions and I think she was a bit controlling. But also I kind of hate this shit because people want to paint her as a villain. A little bit like with the Beatles and you mentioned Yoko Ono. Yeah. They see her as a bit of a wedge who broke up or was about to break up this band, you know, by leading Kurt away. Apparently Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl did not like Courtney. She created tension in the band, but he loved her. He married her. You know, thinking back to that time, she was fucking magnetic. He was too. And they didn't give a fuck, the pair of them. And part of this, they didn't give a fuck about anything. And look, I'm telling you all of this and giving this background because all of this plays into what I'm going to talk about. Okay. I don't know if you remember, after they had their daughter, that Vanity Fair article by Lynn Hirschberg came out, which basically said that... She was on heroin Yeah, when she was pregnant. Yep. And that she was obnoxious. She was image obsessed. She was an opportunist. And she just wanted to fucking marry the biggest rock star on the planet. Yes, she also said that Courtney did her own during the pregnancy and they had their baby taken away from them. Yeah, they did. And they had to fight to get custody back. So can you imagine how fucking terrible that must have been for the pair of them? Awful. Absolutely awful. No, but the truth of it was whether or not she did do heroin during the pregnancy, I don't know. That's what the friends had said to Lynn Hirschberg. But they were yeah, addicts. Nice dropper in it. Yeah, you know, they had drug habits and they had money and they were in and out of rehab a lot. And the thing is too, they weren't kids. In 91 when they got together and she got pregnant, she was 27, he was 24. They weren't 18-year-olds. They'd lived some life and they were both on a path of self-destruction. It's not a surprise that things went wrong in the relationship. At the time when Kurt killed himself spoiler alert if you didn't know that he killed himself their marriage yeah their marriage was falling apart she admits she was about to have an affair he was contacting lawyers about getting a divorce the thing is despite a lot of misinformation apparently Courtney had signed a prenup if they divorced she wasn't going to get any of his money anyway right so if he was looking to leave her she knew she had no grounds but he loved being a dad You can see it on all the home footage, especially in the montage Mm. of heck home vids. But, you know, he hated himself. He had demons. He had a crappy childhood. Mm. And then 29 years ago, on April the 8th in 1994, or maybe a day or two earlier, Kurt Cobain went up to an attic over his garage, known as the Green Room, and he shot up a fucking shit ton of heroin. And then he managed to, like, tidy up this little cigar box that he kept his heroin stash in. He neatened up his ciggies, lined everything up. 
He stabbed a pen through a suicide note, put a shotgun in his mouth. It's a bit much. And pulled the trigger. That's even worse. Fuck me. Yeah. And he was found holding the gun, which when the police came, they looked at the scene and went, yep, clear case of suicide. It's really final, isn't it? Yeah. The shotgun in the mouth situation. Was it a rifle or a shotgun? I don't remember any of the details. It was actually a gun used for shooting birds. So it was actually a very light gauge gun. Rifle. Yes, rifle. But it was a bird shooting rifle. So it's not like one that's going to actually blow your head off. And I'll come back Mm. to that because that's one of the theories here. Because clear case of suicide or is it Geordie? Well, they always say that, don't they? Really, it took only a matter of hours after the news of his death went global for the conspiracy theories to start. Straight away? Literally hours. There was a DJ who, who started it. But of course... Those bloody DJs! I know! They're really right. They're as bad as the internet. They are. They were the, they they were. Were the interwebs of the generation. But <laughs> of course, who was at the centre of all the murder plot theories? Courtney. Yep. Outspoken, loudmouthed, heroin-using wife, Courtney Love. Did Courtney Love kill Kirk Cobain? That's what I'm looking at. So that is the conspiracy theory of this week's episode. Yes, it is. From you. I know that this conspiracy theory is controversial because there's so much out there wanting to point the finger at Courtney. Whether you like it or not, this conspiracy is now part of the narrative around Kurt Cobain. It just is, which is why I think it's interesting because people to this day still have really strong opinions about it. And we could do a 10-part podcast about this because there's so much out there. Right. You know, Nirvana was just so big and people can't believe that he would leave his baby. And people, I think, want to create conspiracy theories because they just can't wrap their head around how it could happen. Him not wanting to leave his child because he's such a devoted father. Let's remember he was a heroin addict before he was a father. And that kind of, that trumps it. It does. Heroin addicts, yeah, they don't kind of don't care about. When you're in that big hole, you kind of don't care about anything else. That's it. And he he was deep into heroin. And I hate using the word junkie because it sounds so disparaging. But he was... A really, really massive heroin addict. They both were. In fact, three weeks before he killed himself, he apparently had tried to kill himself by taking Rohypnol and apparently had left a suicide note. But the world didn't know this. So it comes as a shock when, you know, he kills himself by putting a gun in his mouth. Because it is so final, yeah, and violent. Yes, but the public didn't know about all the attempts beforehand. So, yes, it does come as a shock, but I'm just going to run through a few things that make people think Courtney was involved. And the first is why she hired a private detective rather than go straight to the police once she realised Kurt was missing. Basically, eight days after Kurt got back from Seattle from Rome, where he'd already tried to kill himself, on March 18, the police were called to the house, their house, because Courtney had called them and told them that Kurt had locked himself in a room with a gun and said that he was going to kill himself. And there is evidence that this happened. It's all in the police reports. Courtney, Kurt's management and friends, they were all really worried. So they decided to hold an intervention to try and help Kurt kick heroin. And that happened on March 25. Ten of his friends and colleagues ambushed him, basically, at home. And they all threatened, like, 
tough love scenarios to try and get him to go to rehab, including Courtney saying she was going to leave him. But it did not go well. He was furious and not into it. And Courtney ended up just going, fuck this and leaving. And she went to LA to go to rehab on her own. And then a couple of days later, Kurt went into rehab, but he only lasted two days before he ran away. When Courtney heard this, she cancelled all his credit cards, hired a PI to track him down because no one knew where he'd gone to after he'd left rehab. But honestly, why didn't you call the police? Mm. And then on April 4th, Kurt's mum, Wendy, actually did file a missing persons report and urged the police to go look for him at like all the drugs houses he was known to go to to score drugs in Seattle. But he wasn't there. Yeah. He was actually at home preparing to kill himself. Wow. But weirdly, Geordie, no one looked for him at home at his house. That's weird. Yeah, it is weird. And no one looked for him in that green room where at this point he'd already put a gun in his mouth and shot himself. Mm. But the thing is, the private investigator that Courtney Love hired was a guy called Tom Grant. And it's him who has flipped the script because it's him who has come out publicly for the last 29 years to say, yes, she hired him to find Kurt, but he believes she hired him because she orchestrated his death. So this guy didn't get paid enough, do you think, for the first job that he wants a little bit more cash out of this? He's realised possibly... This is me being a little bit cynical about these claims just because I think, well, maybe there's something in it, but I, may, I haven't heard your evidence yet that's coming from this guy. But mm. I do think, hmm, you didn't get paid well enough the first time. You've got a story. You know people are interested. You know people are going to pay for this kind of info. He basically thinks she hired him to cover her own tracks as an alibi. And he thinks he's been used. Also, I don't know about the money angle. I think he feels he was used by her. So... Part of the evidence against her is the credit cards. Now, he says that Courtney Love cancelled them, but they were used after his death. Apparently, Courtney told Tom, the private investigator, that she wanted him to find the person who was using his credit cards because she said they were missing and that someone had tried to use them after he died. Tom has a list of all the days that the credit cards were being used. But the banks say... It's not when the credit cards were used. It was when the information was logged onto the computer. Right. And that back in the early 90s, there was a delay. Of course. For me, the credit cards, it doesn't point to murder and it doesn't point to Courtney trying to cover something up. I just think that maybe someone else had his credit cards. Maybe they were stolen. Maybe he gave them to someone. You know, he was a drug addict. He was hanging out with sketchy people. Maybe someone took them. Maybe he gave his cards to the dealers. I don't know. But I think it's a dud conspiracy theory. So I'm wiping that away. Then we have apparent lack of fingerprints on the gun. When the police checked the gun and the shells, apparently there were no prints on anything. No prints on the gun. No prints on the shells. Why would there be prints on the shells? He's just fired the gun. Because he has to load them. But apparently Dylan, his friend Dylan Carlson, bought that gun for him and potentially maybe Dylan could have loaded the gun. Whoever loaded the gun will have their fingerprints on the bullets. Yes, but apparently ballistics experts say that this is kind of normal because as the gun is fired, it can smear the fingerprints. 
Yeah. That would make the prints unusable. So when the gun is dusted, they wouldn't give proper prints. And remember, this is early 90s. Like the tech for all this stuff is pretty primitive. Yeah. Tom, the private investigator, says the gun was wiped clean. But the police say there were prints. They were just unusable. Who found him? An electrician. Ah. There was meant to be some electricity work being done and he had to get above the garage to mm. to do it and he found Kurt and yes. called the police. There's conspiracy around this too. I mean, there's no DNA testing done as far as I know on the gun and this was before DNA testing was really huge so I don't know if Kurt's DNA was on the gun or not or if there was someone else's. That's something to look into. Another thing is there's this whole thing about there not being enough blood on the scene Mm. for somebody shooting a gun into their mouth. Ew. And this is the thing. Apparently, it didn't really blow his head off. Oh, God. And there's not a lot of blood. And this is also why there is like a guy out there trying to get the photographs of Kurt's dead body out on the internet so people can see this. And Courtney Love is trying to stop it. And we had talked about this. Nobody wants those pictures on the internet. No. no one needs to see that. It's not that Courtney Love wants to cover something up. It's just that shit doesn't need to be on the internet. It doesn't need to be. But like I said, apparently it was a bird shooting gun. So it wasn't really powerful. Enough to kill you, but not enough to destroy your head. Hence yeah. the lack of blood. And the police have said and ballistic experts have said that is perfectly in line with the type of gun that was used. Yeah. So again, is that something that Courtney Love should be accused of no i don't think it suggests courtney killed him i just think he used a a light gauge gun yeah so boom that's gone boom boom michelle i know that was very (laughs) insensitive oh i'm sorry oh no okay so then wham bam that's gone Wham bam! Oh, sorry. Oh, God. Oh, okay. Michelle, you're so okay. violent. Sorry, what should I say? Then, um, tick. Tick, tick. Move on. Move on. Good one. All right. <laughs> so then we're going to look at the drugs in his system because when Kurt died, he had 1.52 milliliters per liter of morphine slash heroin in his blood. Okay. And that's apparently three times the least lethal dose of heroin. Oh. And Tom, the private investigator, claims that with that amount of drugs and heroin and diazepam and other shit in his system, there was no way that he would even be conscious, let alone have the ability to hold a gun and be coherent enough to pull the trigger mm. and make the paraphernalia of all this like drug stuff nice and neat, leave the note, line up the shotgun and kill himself. But experts say that it's all a matter of tolerance. And because he'd been a hardcore user he probably could actually handle that level of heroin in his blood. I agree. And in fact, it has been really well documented that Kurt had almost overdosed multiple times over the years. And then one, two, maybe even three hours later, gone on stage and played a fucking yeah. amazing show. So, d- Whereas I took two Panadol forts in Australia for a tooth problem and I thought I was going to die. Yeah. See, it's all a matter of level and tolerance. Exactly. Dude could handle his drugs. So I also think that this theory does not hold up. And nothing here points to her like dosing him up because she wasn't even there. She was in rehab. She didn't give him the drugs. Yeah. She didn't shoot him up. And she's a messy junkie as well. Excuse me to say that word again. Well, how is she going to be so straight 
down the line to be able to sort this little problem out or massive fucking problem. Exactly. Tick, I think that's gone. That's off the list. And then there's uh, Nick Broomfield's not very good documentary called Curtain Courtney. Is he pointing the finger in that? I've never seen any of these things, this montage or Curtain Courtney or anything like that. Okay, well, full disclosure, I have not watched either of those documentaries for years. Oh, you have I have seen watched them. them. Yeah. You know, I should probably have watched them. But I do remember there was a guy that they spoke to called Alden Hoke who calls himself El Duce. He was in some Seattle band who right. says, Courtney Love offered him 50 grand to whack Kurt Cobain. That's how he says it. Maybe they were drunk talking. Maybe she did. But did she give him the 50 grand? Did he do it? Well, he says he didn't take it. He says, I didn't take it. 50 grand should have done it. She wanted me to whack Kurt Cobain. And he goes on to say all this kind of rambling shit. He sounds fucking high or drunk. I don't know. But then he says... He says he does know who killed Kurt Cobain. Yeah. And if you buy him a beer, he'll say anything. He'll oh, talk. He's a very reliable witness then, isn't he? Exactly. But the thing is that bloody Nick Broomfield doesn't even say, okay, who killed him? Here's a like, beer. His documentary making <laughs> is so bad. And honestly, the star of that Curtin Courtney documentary, it's Nick Broomfield. Oh, I see. It's all about him. It's ridiculous. Wow. Didn't they have a falling out somehow beforehand? Didn't he have an axe to grind? Well, that was what the the documentary turned into. The documentary turned into court trying to get the the documentary stopped because it was ridiculous. And then that's what the second half of the Curtin Courtney documentary is all about. She wants it stopped because she's got something to hide. I don't know. But look, El Duce, zero credibility. And there's no evidence that she offered him 50 grand. And even if she did, we'll never know. Mm. Did she? Didn't she? Who knows, but is that enough to prove that she killed Kurt Cobain or ordered a hit on Kurt? Clearly not, because she's still walking around a free woman, so no, I'd say it's not. So I think that's a dud theory as well. And then there's the suicide note. After Kurt died, his suicide note was made public, and you can go online and read it. I'll put a link to it, but I have to admit, I personally think there's some weird things about it. So firstly, the handwriting. Mm -hmm. Now, Handwriting experts do say that most of the note was written by Kurt, but there's a question mark over the last four lines Mm. where he says, please keep going, Courtney, for Frances, for her life, which will be so much happier without me. I love you. I love you. Right. Now, I've looked at that note and it actually fucking does look like someone else wrote those lines. Could it not be that his pen ran out or he's done it over a period of days? He could have been fucking on drugs. There's all sorts of ideas, but there is a theory that comes from actually Courtney Love's lawyer who says Courtney Love was found with tracing paper in her bag days before he died. The implication here being that she wrote those last few lines. What's the tracing paper from? Just trying to figure out what she would be doing with that. How would you use that? Apparently, Rosemary Carroll is the lawyer who said this. And she's also the lawyer for Hole and Nirvana and she was the godmother of Frances Bean. So she's not just some random, she's like in a circle. She said that someone had gone through Kurt's notebook and had found passages where there were lines from that suicide note and she says it could plausibly have been cobbled together to create that suicide note and that someone could have traced over those passages and forged them to cobble this note together, the Kurt suicide note, and that she was the one that found the backpack 
left by Courtney at her house with the tracing paper inside with also a note inside the backpack saying this to-do list and part of the to-do list was get arrested what basically which if you're looking at that from a conspiracy theory is that she wanted to get arrested so she had an alibi for the time when Kurt was supposedly being killed that's her lawyer saying this and this is a really credible lawyer she was illegally taped by tom grant saying these things and she's never deny what she said she just says that yeah, wow. I said those things, but he shouldn't have taped right. me. And she's she's a fucking credible lawyer, part of the family. So a lot of people point to that as the smoking gun mm. on this. No pun intended. Fuck, not more of <laughs> Michelle, you can't help yourself. Sorry, I, I can't. <laughs> what I will say is, like you said, there's all reasons why those last lines maybe don't look like his handwriting. But also maybe Courtney did write it because maybe she read that suicide note previously and added those lines who knows maybe never said anything about her and she was like fuck (laughs) this shit I'm gonna write that he loved me but you know what even if she did all that proves is that she was maybe fucked up maybe she was sad but it doesn't prove that she murdered him what I will say about this suicide note is in the police photographs the suicide note has been like stabbed with a pen with a pen Mm. through it for a guy who's just tidied up all these cigarettes into a line and then done that it's a bit weird it's almost like he's stabbed the pen through it so it's piercing it thing is when you see the suicide note that i think has been circulated there's no hole in that Mm. note there's no stab hole that is a question mark for me i don't know interesting and then we talked about you asked me who found him and it was the electrician but the thing is, it's all these rumours about Callie, the male yeah. nanny, who was looking after Francis mm. at this point. They had full-time nanny. Now, first of all, it's been rumoured that Courtney and Callie were having a thing. I don't know about that. That's just rumours. Back to Rosemary Carroll, who, the lawyer. who I said, had concerns about the suicide note. And like I said, there's audio actually on the internet where she was talking to Tom Grant about that note. Mm. She said, and this is on the audio as well, she'd gone through the house and found a note that Callie, the nanny, had written saying that when everyone was looking for Kurt, Callie had already known that Kurt was in the house because he was staying there and had seen him. Apparently when Courtney had first hired Tom Grant to look for Kurt, she told him, don't keep an eye on the house because Callie's there. So if Kurt turns up, he'll tell me. Okay. Look for him elsewhere. But the thing is that Callie did see Kurt in the morning, but he didn't tell Courtney or Tom Grant. And in fact, he later said that he thought that seeing Kurt was a dream. That's weird. I mean, what the fuck? But I will, in his defense, say at that point, everyone, Kurt, Courtney and Callie, were on fucking drugs. So we don't know what state of mind he was in. Maybe he did think it was a dream. If that is true, it's really fucking tragic because if Callie had told anyone that he'd seen Kurt Might at the house... Might have saved him that day. Yeah, really. To circle this back, does it prove that Courtney murdered Kurt? No. It's just some sad fucked yeah. upness. So I don't think that stands up as proof. Then you had said about her orchestrating and having to organise a lot of shit. Well, the thing is, at the time, Kurt was in rehab and then he escaped... So if this was all premeditated by her... She wouldn't have known that he would have escaped, yeah. Exactly. How do you plan when when your husband's meant to be in rehab at the time? And, you know, she told Tom Grant that she couldn't go to Seattle because she had business in LA, but Rosemary Carroll, the lawyer, said she didn't have business in LA. Like I said, she was in rehab. 
she was preparing for her album release. Mm. I get why maybe she didn't drop everything to try and find her husband, but she put at least one step in place with Tom Grant. He was using, they were having problems, the intervention didn't go well, she was in rehab, she was getting ready to release the second album. I can see why she did not go looking for him herself, but I don't understand why she didn't immediately call the Mm. police. Real life. Real life. True crime. True I could go on and on and on with so many more different theories, mm, yeah. Geordie, because people think Courtney loves a fucking monster who killed her husband. There are so many theories, but I will say this from a mental health perspective. Kurt had a lot of fucking risk factors for committing suicide. He had insane levels of pressure. He had constant and severe pain. Physical yes, he had pain. Stomach he had that stomach problems, condition. Yes. He was a functioning heroin addict. Plus... He was genetically predisposed to suicide, if you believe in that theory. In 1913, his great-grandfather's sister, Florence Cobain, who was 17 years old, wanted to go to the movies, but her dad said no. So she got a rifle and shot herself in the chest. Bloody hell. But grim thing is, she fucking survived. She didn't die. She lived to be 94. Oh, my God. One of Kurt's great-grandfathers on his mother's side attempted suicide with a knife. He survived but died later after deliberately reopening the stab wounds <gasps> in a psychiatric hospital. In 1938, when Kurt's grandfather Leland and Leland's brothers, Burl and Kenneth Cobain, were young, their dad, John, who was deputy sheriff, was sitting on a stool at a pub when he reached into his pocket for a packet of cigarettes and accidentally knocked his pistol out of its holster and killed himself. Oh, but that was an accident. Not really suicide, yeah. but that's an accident. But then when, in 1979, when Kurt was 12, Burl killed himself with a gun. Wow. And then five years later, Kenneth killed himself. It's almost been normalised within the family unit and the family history. But with all of that in mind, Geordie, what would Courtney's motive be to kill her husband? I don't know. She wasn't in his will because they yeah. had a prenup. So it's not the money. And she was already famous and on the brink of being more famous. So she had her own money. She had her own fame. Plus, she had a toddler who needed a father and he loved that kid. So why would she kill him? Despite Rosemary Carroll, the lawyer, had said that Kurt wanted out of the relationship and that the pair were looking to divorce. Is that really a reason to kill the father of your child? It's easier to just divorce. I know. No matter what you think of Courtney Love... I just cannot believe that she's a killer. My opinion here is that I just don't think the conspiracy theories add up. Yeah. I think that he was depressed. I think he had a family history of suicide. He had a heroin addiction, a fucking massive yeah. one. And I think in that moment, or maybe for a long time, he just didn't want to be here anymore. And I think it's sad. And I think the world lost a really fucking massive talent. Too but soon. I think that's all there yeah. is to it. I agree. Well, Michelle, what a broad and interesting story. I thought I knew everything there was to know. Well, not everything, but everything that was out there to know. But actually, you've enlightened me today. So for that, I thank you. That's okay. And if anyone's interested, there is a fucking wormhole which will eat months of your life with all the conspiracy theories that I just touched on a few. So I hope listeners, you enjoyed our little jaunt down rock and roll memory lane and exploration of the conspiracies behind some of our most famous rock and roll stories. But before we leave you today, I want to remind our beautiful listeners, we love you so much, about the British Podcast Awards. Voting is still on for the listener's choice. 
please, if you wouldn't mind, if you haven't done it already, and please get your mum, your dad, your uncle, your brothers, your work colleagues to do the same. Send the link. You can do that by going to www.britishpodcastawards.com, is it? Yeah. Or .co.uk. I think it's Try one or, or the other. Yes. Go into the right-hand side, try and find the listener's choice vote and vote for eavesdropping or whatever. <laughs> eavesdropping. I haven't done it yet. So Michelle's done it. I haven't. So we know we've got one vote. <laughs> At least. So we appreciate your help. But I will put okay. the podcast awards links. To make it nice and simple, you can go to the show notes. Show notes on the website. She's the linking queen. So any other information you want, just go to the website, eavesdroppingpodcast.com, and you can find all the links to every episode and a few little videos and whatnot. And if you're a patron, as we mentioned earlier, you get extra content. And so for that, we thank you as well. And I think it's about time that we say... Wherever you are. Or whatever you do. Just keep eavesdropping. 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 Eavesdropping, dropping, eavesdropping, dropping, eavesdropping, dropping, 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 drop